Welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Sheckman. Even though it's taken a hit this week, cryptocurrencies, NFTs, DAOs, the blockchain they ride on are still, in the view of many, the decentralized financial instruments of the future. Even if they never replace the fiat currencies of nations, their role in markets are here to stay. And crypto, like everything else, has become politicized. You would think that an asset class that is almost pure speculation, and not even about owning anything, would be immune from the primal forces of partisanship. But no, both the left and the libertarian right have very different views of what crypto and its sister products on the blockchain and Web 3.0 should be. Few have been harder than the left who sees in it some kind of pure evil of the market. The good news is that when my guest, author, thinker, and all-around wise man Daniel Pinchbeck talks about the politics of crypto, he also helps us to understand what it really is, why it matters, and why to the folks on all political sides it should matter in the future. Daniel Pinchbeck has long been considered a renaissance man ahead of his time. He's the author of the books Breaking Open the Head, The Return to Quetzalcoatl, Notes from the Edge of Time, How Soon is Now?, and went plant stream. He saw around corners long before many others with respect to our ecological crisis and was a one-time executive director of the Center for Planetary Culture. His essays and articles have appeared in every major publication. He's spoken at conferences around the world and had his work featured in a 2010 documentary. He currently writes the Daniel Pinchbeck newsletter on Substack. Daniel, thanks so much for joining us and welcome to the Who, What, Why podcast. Oh, thanks for having me, Jeff. Why has there been such profound criticism, particularly from the left and, and, and all parts of the left, towards crypto at this point? I, I've been toggling around, but I, but I do really sympathize with uh, a lot of the criticism. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's a lot to unpack. Uh, but I mean, you know, 2008, there was this major financial you know, crash. The global economic system kind of went down. Uh, and we saw that um, central banks could kind of just create uh, you know, money as needed, uh, something they hadn't told us about when we wanted, you know, social programs and so on. And I think that that led to a profound mistrust in the financial system, also, also destroying a lot of people's like primary asset. And around that time, Bitcoin was issued and, and it was definitely issued as a um, challenge to the hegemony of uh, the money system and the central banks. And, um, you know, many people suspect that behind it was a kind of right-wing libertarian philosophy. Uh, in fact, there's a good book by this guy, David Columbia, uh, you know, Software's Ideology, uh, I think is what it's called, where he looks at the politics of Bitcoin as something that, you know, if it was to become super popular, would challenge the, you know, centrality and sovereignty and hegemony of nation states and limit their capacity to raise funds, you know, both for good and for bad, whether for, you know, building armies or for, you know, building housing or, you know, health programs. So li libertarians are tend to be people who prefer, you know, a, a strong emphasis on private liberty, a strong emphasis on, on private property, and government is kind of reduced to the uh, police force, you know, for those who have, uh, who have resources. So I, I, I personally am very much against the libertarian uh, worldview. And unfortunately, it seems that a lot of the new cryptos are basically just uh, amplifying that. Uh, so for instance, uh, I, I actually have just been, you know, studying more and learning more about, for instance, Ethereum, mm -hmm. uh, which was mm -hmm. started by this kid Vitalik Buterin, who's, you know, very genius, you know, cryptographer, mathematician, 
program where uh, and but but some of the early money to create Ethereum was was a grant from uh, Peter Thiel. Uh, Peter Thiel is one of the PayPal mafia uh, right wing billionaire who is Trump's uh, science advisor. So yeah, there's a lot of suspicion on the left. I mean, where, where I see the the the, the problem is that. Um, you know the global financial system is deeply corrupt, and uh, you know basically supports uh, the extraction, the funneling of capital from you know the the the, the masses to the small group who happen to uh, control you know certain institutions and corporations and so on. It's and it's a system that's getting worse and worse, and it's directly related to our planetary apocalypse. The fact that we're facing ecological catastrophe, uh, Armageddon, you know, even extinction and so on. So we need we need to flip this economic uh, system in some way. But and, and, you know, when you look at the blockchain, which is simply distributed ledger technology, you know, you could define uh, a different mechanisms for exchanging value for um, kind of uh, for recognizing the things that corporations now see as externalities, um, like the system that, that, you know, understands the importance of carbon and, and, and gives that an accounting. Uh, so blockchain could allow for that, but at the moment it's much more being used for um, kind of creating new speculative asset classes that really have very little uh, foundations or fundamentals, although some of them are very seductive and attractive for people who are seeing that their savings, um, you know, in relationship to inflation, just uh, they, they're going, you know, below water, they're in debt. You know, so the fact that you know crypto is this new asset class where you have the capacity, if you're extremely lucky or get it early, to make uh, high yields or, or extremely you know exponential returns is of course very seductive to many people. But you know, unfortunately, if you look at it as as a whole rather than just as individual success stories, um, it seems to be sort of tilting back uh, more towards supporting the, the super wealthy than the average person. One of the things that, that you had said could be of some interest are these distributed autonomous organizations, DAOs, the one that was created to buy this copy of the U.S. Constitution, that those instruments, that that idea could have some potential in terms of dealing with some of the broken aspects of the system. Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's my hope. And I actually want to start one as an experiment uh, for the creative community. But I think you have to be very careful because this whole um, thing about smart contracts. So, so basically, the idea is that um, you know, you, you know, the people who are very fascinated with crypto tend to people people who who you know see that centralization is one issue. Although, although the question of whether cryptos are actually decentralized or if it's actually kind of like a, a fraudulent you know concept okay. is, is an interesting one. Uh, but, but then, but then also the idea of trust—that basically, um, you know, they they feel that um, you know the best thing would be have a, a, a system that, you know, in a sense is trustless, or in a sense guarantees uh, that you don't even need to have trust in other people because it's all being you know dealt with by code and and in a, in a very mathematical way. You know, like if uh, if I get paid for something and you know somebody did some graphics. You know they're kind of counting on me to pay pay them for those graphics or whatever. Uh, with uh, if if it was done as a you know smart contract on the blockchain, those royalties could be split automatically. So you know that's very interesting. And also you know with non fungible tokens or NFTs, which are sort of digital certificates of ownership, similarly they can have smart contracts built into them. So if I create like a work of art and I sell it as an NFT, then every time it's resold to somebody else, I could get you know ten percent of that. You know, and, and that's that's built in and guaranteed. So, as a creative person, I then share in the in the you know kind of um, the wealth as my as my work gets more popular or, or more valuable. 
so yeah, so, so distributed autonomous organizations are essentially creating organizations that are organized around smart contracts rather than legal legal contracts. And you know, th this it has some interesting pluses, but but also some dangerous minuses. I mean, the problem is that um, you know our traditional legal contracts protect us in certain respects. I mean, for instance, you know, let's say somebody pays rent on their apartment every month, and one month they don't have the rent. You know, they lost their job or something, or they had big bills. You know, generally you can go. You know, first of all, it take months to close. You know, to, to evict you. You have to go through a whole process. There's some humane, you know, legal, you know, situation there. You, you could argue if it's you know fair for the landlord, fair for the tenant. Um, you know, but but you know, there's some gray. There's some fudge, fudgeable gray area. With uh, smart contracts, it wouldn't be like that. So you know, it'd be 12:01 on January 1st. You you didn't pay your rent. You know, the door automatically locks you out uh, and you're done, you know, you're and, you know, or maybe even a drone appears on your doorstep and points a gun at you and says time to go. You know, so we can see how these smart contracts, the rigidity of them could lock us into an even more uh, dangerously unjust world that would really want be even more to the benefit of, uh, you know, large capital holders and large institutions so that, that there's legitimate concerns about it. How, you know, however, yeah, the, this idea that you could bring people together, you know, have a distributed, decentralized mechanism for choose making decisions together, and then, and then a vault where value is is stored, and how that is a portion can also be described, uh, you know, described democratically. That's all, you know, somewhat interesting. One of the other things that that you talk about is the way in which blockchain currencies or blockchains in general is melding with things like artificial intelligence and all this talk about the metaverse and what the dangers are as all these things start to kind of come together. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves, technology is very intoxicating and seductive and uh, addictive. You know, so we can kind of have to like step back and ask ourselves, you know, what have been like the good and bad, you know, qualities of the last 20 or 30 years in terms of what technology has done for us and kind of done to us, you know, and as we saw, you know, recently with, uh, you know, Francis Hogan testimonies around Facebook, I mean, these companies are well aware that um, they're creating something that's like, you know, as addictive as tobacco or heroin, particularly for young people. And we are seeing among you know young people a huge amount of like apathy, a huge amount of mental illness, su you know suicide, and so on. And, and and some of that is fueled by you know kind of social competition through like Instagram and sense of lack of self worth around body image and so on. You know which which these technologies kind of fuel. So um, you know, but but the tendency of this sort of you know technological system is to is to is to is to you know keep pushing us further and further into virtual and digital realms. And, um, you know, it, 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 it in itself could be seen as something that we need to sort of start questioning. I mean, I, I you know, I'm intrigued by the potential of, of these sort of immersive metaverses, these, you know, 3D, 4D artificial realities and so on. But um, I'm concerned about the level to which we're not like facing up to this, you know, ecological emergency and also kind of like the, uh, you know, kind of rapid uh, reassembling of like authoritarianism around the world. Um, and the sort of uh, attrition that we're seeing with liberal democracies. And um, yeah, I mean, some, some of it, I think, is just because people feel so just disconnected and apathetic. And, um, you know, this technolo technology used in certain ways could ameliorate that, but, but instead it's, it tends to kind of pull people more and more into these artificial realities. The other thing that it does, and, and NFTs are perhaps the best example of this, 
is it takes further this idea of monetizing everything. Yes, that's one of the big dangers. and I do, I do recommend if people want to explore this deeper. Yes, as you mentioned, there's my work. Um, you know, I've been looking at Daniel Pinchbeck.substack.com. It's one of a number of issues that I address. Some of them are more like mystical, around like psychedelics and shamanism, or um, you know, even conspiratorial. Looking at, you know, thinkers like um, RFK Jr. And, and other and other stuff, trying to put a critical framework around that type of stuff. But uh, there's what there's a project called the Crypto Syllabus, uh, which is very interesting. It's a very high level uh, intellectual one. Uh, then there's this guy, I think it's called Folding Intelligence, uh, which I just watched this incredible two-hour video that he did really going through in depth, uh, you know, the problems with crypto and the dangers of it. And yeah, I mean, you know, the, the model of, uh, you know, kind of Ethereum is uh, the sort of, you know, financialization of everything, like like fractal fractional ownership is a future potential. Uh, there's an interesting book, I mean, interesting in the sense of horrible from my perspective, called Radical Markets, uh, which is an MIT uh, economist who then has done some work with Vitalik, the founder of uh, Ethereum. And yeah, the idea is in the future, like everything will be constantly auctioned. Uh, so, you know, your, your house, your, your, you know, your, your, your suitcase, your watch, you know, you, whoever whoever bids highest for it would have access to it. I don't. I, I mean, I, I assume there's some safeguards on it, but I, in practice, that's kind of the idea. And um, yeah, just you know, I, I, as I've written in the in the pieces, I, I more support. You know, I'm a left. I admit that I'm a leftist. You know, but maybe more anarchist than anything else. But you know, going back to Karl Marx, where he talked about how um, in sort of the original, you know, declarations of independence in the U.S. and France. We enshrined certain freedoms and we denied other freedoms that maybe we should have thought more about. So we gave everybody, you know, the freedom to practice religion rather than giving them freedom from religion. And we gave people, you know, freedom to trade rather than having freedom from trade. You know, so I personally, I would kind of prefer at this point freedom from trade. But a lot of this stuff with uh, this, the way the crypto is pointing and uh, NFTs and so on, it would be trade would become, you know, a, a kind of intrinsic part of day-to-day daily existence even more than it is now. Is it your sense that the crypto world is here to stay? It's an interesting question. I mean, um, I I was feeling that was the case. Um you know, I mean, I mean, so, I mean, you know, once again, for me, stepping back, and I wrote about this in my 2017 book, How Soon Is Now, you know, the the the, the current, uh, you know, people are very invested across the board in capitalism. And, um, you know, it's hard for people to believe that, you know, that, 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 that the system might have an end date or terminus. Uh, unfortunately, capitalism is coming into direct conflict with the life support systems of the planet and as immediately threatening our own you know future lives and certainly the lives of future generations and that's because it's an economic model that um, as i mentioned before ignores what they call externalities such as the health of you know the integrity of ecosystems or the health of uh, local you know indigenous communities uh, you know the, the the values that communities might have is based on constant uh, growth and exploitation. So as as a dynamic system, you know money is created as a bank debt. So that then that that money has to you know the, the debt has to be paid back with interest. So the the constant growth of interest requires constant development and, and discovery and penetration of new markets. Uh, so that even you know with this idea of these <clears throat> endless 
vaccine boosters, for instance, it's like they've turned our immune system into an operating system uh, that uh, becomes like a new market to exploit. Um, you know, water, you know, once was available freely and was delicious is now, you know, people buy it, you know, plas- you know through plastic. So capitalism has this inex- inexorable push to keep developing, to keep growing, to keep exploiting. And, you know, as I said, the, the, the natural you know, resources of the planet can't really handle that anymore. So, so we need to transition to a new economic system that uh, is not going to make people very happy. But I mean, if the choice is, um, you know, you know, extinction or metamorphosis, then hopefully we choose metamorphosis. I mean, you know, we, we have to put the brakes on uh, a lot of the development, the, the, the endless growth, uh, the endless consumption that that has become the basis of our system, and um, so I think that you know blockchain, other forms of crypto could be devised that um, would allow for a, 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 a positive transition. But those those are not the ones that are being um, kind of uh, used at the moment or promoted at the moment. The ones that are being promoted uh, are more like speculative asset classes. And then, of course, there's the ecological damage, the ecological cost of mining crypto. The, the, the problem is that, uh, you know, particularly block, uh, Bitcoin and Ethereum are based on what's called proof-of-work uh, mining. And so it requires uh, massive computing power with all these, uh, basically, they're, they're to, to make a transaction the computers have to kind of like guess an extremely complex uh, number or, or, you know, complete some very complex mathematical equation or whatever. So, you know, these gigantic uh, rigs uh, and, you know, by some kind of, um, you know, the, I guess 0.55% of the world's electricity is uh, now going into Bitcoin uh, mining, which, you know, it, it, it's, 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 that's a little bit insane uh, considering, you know, the, the problems we're already having with energy consumption, that, that, that Bitcoin itself is consuming as much as like a small country like Finland or maybe even a larger country. The, the advocates for Bitcoin have a number of clever ways of, of arguing this. But one argument they make is that um, kind of, um, you know, Bitcoin mining tends to use renewable sources or even find kind of access like excess sources of, of renewable energy that wasn't really being utilized properly in the system, whether it's like hydroelectric or geothermal or whatever. But I mean, I think it's kind of a dumb argument because yeah, we know that the Bitcoin mining is already using more power, I believe, than all the solar panels in the world. So it's certainly a, a, a regression. And, and it's also, you know, as we can see it, there's not really a, a great social utility. I mean, you know, ultimately Bitcoin is just, you know, and you know it's an open source technological platform that um, there's a certain set of code that a number of people have agreed upon as having this value. You know there isn't really an intrinsic uh, value behind it, and so ultimately it is kind of like a um, you know Ponzi scheme, marketing scam in some way. In that um, you know if people lose their belief in it or their interest in it, it just disintegrates. And and one of the you know kind of points that Bitcoin advocates make is that the fiat currency is also you know, speculative and, and, and virtual and doesn't really exist. That, that's really not true. I mean, I totally, you know, hate the way that, uh, like, if we look at, you know, the 2008 financial crash and how we really saw how uh, manipulated and corrupt uh, the you know, financial system is, uh, it's really a problem and it's really cost America its standing in the world, which we're now seeing as like a massive, 
global emergency, as we see China and Russia, these kind of authoritarian uh, kind of uh, nations becoming more aggressive and more forceful, uh, basically part of partially because America has showed itself to be so corrupt and hypocritical that it's lost a lot of its standing in the world. Um, but still, a fiat currency is in theory backed by, um, you know, all of the assets of, of a nation, you know, so, you know, part of the reason, I mean, you know, yes, you could also argue that, yes, the U.S. dollar is partially very valuable because it's been the petrodollar. They made a deal with the Middle East, we made a deal with the Middle East in the 70s that, you know, the U.S. dollar would be the medium of transaction for oil. So there's that aspect to it. But beyond that, there's also the fact that the U.S. You know, dollar is backed by, you know, 200 years of legal, you know, institutions, you know, code institutions, highways, bridges, um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, you know, you know, forests, public parks, and so on. Whereas Bitcoin is really just backed by the collective belief in it in this particular iteration of this mathematical code. I mean, the other thing that's interesting about crypto is that they're, you know, they, the, the, the crypto can always be forked, you know, so, so um, you know, somebody could create their own version of Bitcoin if they had the technical know-how um, or their own version of Ethereum. This has also ha already happened several times uh, or many times. And uh, so that intrigues me because maybe you could figure out a way to create like a Bitcoin. I mean, in some of the stuff that I studied, like uh, Bernard Leotard, who's an economist, wrote a book called The Future of Money. Uh, he argued that one of the things that would get us out of our disaster would be a um, global trading currency that has a negative interest or demurrage charge. So in using that currency, there's no uh, incentive to hoard it or to hold on to it. You actually want to keep circulating it. So you could, for instance, create a you know Bitcoin-like currency uh, as a global trading currency that uh, loses value as people hold on to it. So they're more incentivized to, to share than to hoard. So yeah, so so I guess that's my answer. <laughs> what, what is your sense of how China's dealing with crypto right now, trying to exercise more government control and even trying to create their own digital currency? Sure. Well, that's been, you know, one, one of the, uh, you know, concerns that, that many people, uh, you know, the progressive, well, actually, I mean, even on the right also, it's, it's a shared concern, is that uh, where this stuff is heading is very dangerous. I mean, China has already, of course, created the social credit system where they've, you know, developed this kind of very totalitarian grip over the population because if you step out of line, uh, they're going to, they're gonna, you know, stop your kids from being able to go to school or stop you from being able to travel or, or whatever. You know, so, so China is very um, troublesome, worrisome, I guess, on many levels, um, if you're interested in, you know, the future of like democracy and human freedom and so on. Uh, I mean, they've developed a very, very powerful social credit system, uh, which means that, um, you know, if people um, speak out against the government or, you know, do anything, they won't be able to go to school. Their kids won't be able to go to school. Or they won't be able to travel. You know, unfortunately, technology with its surveillance capacities makes this a lot easier. Uh, the problem is that uh, digital currencies would actually make that even way more easier because at the moment, if you say something on your YouTube or your Twitter that the government doesn't like and you say it, you say it loudly enough, they might shut off your, your, your channel. Uh, but uh, in the future, if it's a, if it's a digital currency, you know, you, you can certainly have your money also shut off. So you wouldn't really be able to survive. Um, there's like a concern if you look at the World Economic Forum and how they always invite uh, the Chinese uh, premier to, to open the conference and so on. There seems to be kind of like a, a coordination, you know, of interests among the power elite. Uh, and yeah, so centralized digital currencies are an issue. Uh, if you're a progressive from a left wing or also from a right wing perspective, actually, they're, they're very dangerous because... 
uh, they could allow for a lot more uh, control over people's activities. Um, Where is the nexus then, as you see it in the West, between digital currency, between crypto, between the financialization of everything as we were talking about, or these attempts to do that, and, and the rise of authoritarianism and the waning of democracy? You know, as I mentioned, uh, the, you know, as I mentioned this David Columbia book, um, The Politics of Bitcoin, uh, Software is Right-Wing Ideology, I think it's called. Um, yeah, there's an implicit bias in uh, these cryptocurrencies towards this right-wing libertarian philosophy, which is very much based on, you know, private control, uh, kind of, um, you know, direct ownership and then shrinking the government. I mean, the whole idea of Bitcoin if it, if it was to become the globally, you know, the, the global reserve currency, it's it can't, you know, it's an, it's a currency that's limited to 21 million uh, coins, tokens, right, which can be div- divisible, but you couldn't, you know, speculate in the same way. Like a country like the U.S. wouldn't be able to go, you know, massively trillions upon trillions of dollars into debt, you know, if they if they were forced to use uh, Bitcoin as, as the reserve currency. So it, it has a, uh, you know, implicit social bias. I mean, there are some people. Um, you know, who argue that it would prevent war because, you know, countries wouldn't be able to, you know, build up a huge debt to buy, to build a, build a huge war machine. Uh, but it would also prevent all sorts of, you know, ambitious social programs and healthcare initiatives and so on, education initiatives. Beyond that, I think in, in itself, it's become a, dist- it's a distraction. I mean, I, I feel like, you know, back in like 2000, you know, 11. I mean, there was the, the Occupy movement. There was the beginning to be a, a strong realization of the need for a new direction. And uh, unfortunately, this sort of, you know, crypto Ethereum kind of came in. And, it, you know, and, I mean, in a way, it's beautiful. It's inspired a lot of younger people, a lot of entrepreneurs, a lot of tech innovators. You know, they're building all these new things or whatever. But um, the, the they're not really, you know, they're, they're, there's no... There's very little effort, I would say, to um, you know use the technology in, in a in this sort of systematic design science way to address our emergency uh, issues right now. You know that include this uh, growing authoritarianism and um, also the uh, ecological disaster that we're facing. And you know, for you know, from an author- uh, yeah, from an authoritarian perspective, I don't I don't think crypto is uh, well. I mean, it is interesting. You have countries like China banning it. Uh, uh, for whatever reason, or putting tight controls over it. Um, but uh, yeah, g- in general, it seems to work well with authoritarian regimes. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I guess what one wonders is, one, whether it collapses as suddenly it's starting to lose value now and all these people that have been fascinated by it suddenly lose interest, or in in fact, there's a whole crypto 2.0 that begins to address some of these issues that you're talking about and that it becomes a, a problem-solving mechanism perhaps at some point to address some of these global crises. Yeah, well, I think that that's why I'm, I'm happy that you invited me on and I'm excited that, you know, whether it's this folding intelligence video or the crypto syllabus or David Columbia's book, uh, there, there needs to be a much deeper conscious awareness of the public around what's happening, what the dangers really are uh, for this. And you know potentially what some of the opportunities are because it uh, you know it it it's still something that can be sculpted and shaped kind of like um, Facebook and Google you know didn't have to take the form that it took you know back in like you know 2009 or something like that or 2010 
Um, so, you know, now we're, we're at the nascent stage of something. And um, yeah, I mean, I mean, essentially, you know, the idea of Web 3.0 is that it's going to do for money and finance, you know, what Web 2.0 did for media and communications. And, uh, you know, when we step back and, and ask ourselves, you know, what did it do? You know, in, in some ways it's positive. Like I like the fact that, um, you know, as an independent creator, you know, I can use, you know, Kickstarter or uh, Substack, you know, or, you know, people can, can create their own media brand really easily. Uh, it's led to very much a sort of, um, you know, kind of uh, fragmentation. Uh, I mean, there was something also good about having kind of a trustable, you know, kind of like coherent resources. Um, and uh, it's also led to fake news. It's led to, uh, you know, filter bubble effects where people really only get the information that's from their own little, you know, thing. And then they, they their biases get exacerbated and suddenly they're sort of mind controlled by some, you know, right-wing group or, you know, terrorist group or something. So, um, so there's a lot of stuff we haven't even sorted out with Web 2.0 and, um you know, and, and then sort of bring that same type of uh, disaggregation uh, to the money and financial world, uh, you know, it d definitely has a lot of uh, dangers to it. And so, yeah, we know, you know, and, and we're seeing the way this thing is going. And there do seem to be these sort of cycles of, you know, kind of expansion and then collapse. And, um, you know, but the collapse doesn't necessarily, you know, kill the beast. It, it just means that it, 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 it sort of, you know, has to take a slightly different form. I mean, one, one of the big points of failure of the whole crypto industry could be the uh, stable coins. And this is something that I don't fully understand, but I know that um, because banks don't really want to handle crypto, the, the crypto world created something called Tether, which is a, uh, a, a crypto coin which is indexed to the US dollar. So one Tether, in theory, equals $1. And Tether is, in theory backed by you know these huge reserves of currency that the people who run tether in theory have you know somewhere safe but in 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 no, in, in reality it, it turns out that this is highly speculative that you know they, they claim to have you know they would need to have like 85 billion dollars in reserves it's not clear they even have like three percent of that and currency reserves that they have taken in they've also used in their own speculative investments so you know there is the possibility that the the, the crypto thing could collapse you know in a very similar way to the uh you know subprime market uh, collapse in 2008 and that would have a lot of repercussions but to be honest with you i think you know i would have positive ones because um it doesn't necessarily mean that this industry is going away but but um there, there's a lot of problems with what's happening right now it's a, it's a little bit like more like the dot-com bubble that reemerged as web 2.0 and and became a different product and we could see the same thing here with crypto i think it's gonna it's gonna be hard now to stop the um kind of uh yeah the, the sort of um uh, this yeah the, the the basic movement towards the kind of uh, fragmentation of uh, financial assets. I mean, there's so many of these coins, um, and uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess you know, one question is how a regulatory framework develops. This is not anywhere near my area of specialty, but you know, one one reason that crypto has been lightly regulated is they kind of take this fine line between 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 being you know seen as uh, securities or speculative assets or being uh, currencies. So they kind of claim themselves to be currencies, you know, when it when it benefits them or 
assets, you know, securities, uh, what, what it benefits them. And, and, and so they've, they've towed this very interesting uh, line up to this point. We also have the question of how the existing banking system may be pushing back against this. Well, I don't think it's pushing back against it. I think, unfortunately, what's happened is some, the, some of the, you know, the major investment banks, the same, the same ones that caused the 2008 subprime crash, the same ones who are always looking for, you know, fantastic returns, have enthusiastically embraced crypto. And I think that's, you know, probably, unfortunately, part of the reason why it's not really being regulated uh, very effectively. Uh, and, you know, for instance, if you look at Tether, you know, it, it seems like it would be obvious that that would need to be, um, you know, kind of like tested, you know, in some kind of regulatory framework. Uh, you know, similar number of, you know, number of people I know were involved with EOS, uh, which literally raised, you know, $4 billion uh, based on a kind of idea of uh, proof of stake uh, rather than proof of work, uh, mm -hmm. which means that instead of having a totally distributed, decentralized way of uh, appro proving transactions, there was like 21 nodes, uh, validators that would, you know, kind of move between different um, kind of uh, players in the EOS ecosystem over time. Uh, but as far as I understand it, EOS, after several years, there's like no product, uh, the thing doesn't work. And, uh, you know, what happened to that $4 billion? I mean, um, yeah, so it'll be interesting, um, you know, to see, you know, to, you know, this is another question of, you know, we, we already learned that the, corrupt, the financial system is very, very deeply corrupt. Um, you know, are they just extending their corruption in this area? I mean, it is, as I said, very tantalizing for average people who are now seeing very low interest or no interest on their checking and savings accounts, you know, to put money into crypto where you could see phenomenal returns if you have the right information or get very lucky. Uh, but a lot of it is very, uh, you know, scammy. And uh, they use like pump and dump uh, schemes. And obviously when, you know, the scam always leaves somebody holding the bag. So if you're not somebody who's very privileged, kind of in the in-groups, who's getting the right information, you know, you could easily be one of the ones who falls victim. The other thing we touched on but haven't really explored in detail is this whole issue of NFTs. Right? You know, that's that's been very interesting. I'm, I'm, I'm very, you know, I'm happy for some friends of mine who are artists who were struggling, you know, kind of waiting tables or sleeping on people's, you know, friends' couches and hit it big over the last year. Uh, one person I know, you know, had a million-dollar photography sale at Christie's, and then later sold a, a single photograph, you know, is now one of the 10 most uh, high, high valued, uh, you know, sale of photograph in, in history. Um, so from, from being unknown, you know, he reached that kind of height. Uh, and other friends of mine have had successful drops of uh, collections of NFTs, you know, probably minting, minting them hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars. You know, of course, you know, more people have had failures, have tried to enter the space and have not had success. Uh, but, you know, it, it feels like uh, when you step back and ask yourself what's happening, um, you know, you can try to analyze the situation. I mean, um, kind of the, the you know, with Ethereum, for instance, there was really, people had amassed a lot of it and made quite a bit of money on it, but there really wasn't anything tangible to do with it because it's not really used, you can't really use right. it to buy anything. So the NFT space became a opportunity for uh, the use of Ethereum and uh, also the marketing of Ethereum. Uh, so um, the high priced, you know, Ethereum art sales helps to promote the whole crypto uh, enterprise. Uh, and while it's you know benefited artists in the short term, they've all now been sort of sucked into this uh, you know this crypto world. Uh, and you know because there's no intrinsic value to crypto, 
it's not like it's backed by real estate or energy or whatever. Um, you know, it, it needs to keep finding, you know, new, 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 new markets and new people to pull, to pull into it. So the artists who've now been pulled in, you know, graphic artists, fine artists, uh, musicians and so on really act as a, uh, you know, publicity and marketing uh, team for, for crypto. And finally, Daniel, is it your sense that, that regulators and the government have any real understanding of what's going on here, or has this really happened way too fast for, for institutions to absorb? I wouldn't, I wouldn't know how to answer that. I mean, uh, you know, I've been, I kind of, you know, started kind of, re, I mean, I'd studied it years ago and I'd written about the potential of blockchain and Ethereum, which in some ways I was more, you know, hopeful about. It seemed to have a more idealistic kind of like frequency to it, uh, you know, back in like 2016 when I wrote my House Leaders Now book. Right. Uh, in 2017, uh, a book that I still think is very relevant, by the way, if anybody wants to check it out. It has um, introductions by Sting and Russell Brand and tries to really look at the types of changes we would have to make systemically to deal with the ecological uh, crisis that we're facing. But short of reading some of these books, does the government or leaders have any idea what they're dealing with? Hopefully they have, you know, smart people who are getting up to speed on it. I mean, I, I, just, I just have no idea. That's not my world, you know. But it only takes a few months. Like, you have to go through a... Uh, you know, it's like anything, like to, to get conversant in, in in the lingo and to understand. I mean, there's some things that I still really have a hard time understanding. I mean, I, I have friends who are want me to get involved with a, um, you know, project, a, a token project called Terra and Luna. And right now, if you, you know, get these Terra coins and you stake them on Anchor, you, you get a apparently quite stable 20% return on your money, which obviously is way higher than banks. But then if you also get more into this Luna ecosystem, you can get, you know, 4x returns or whatever. Um, but it's really much, very much behind, beyond me. I mean, my, my friends who are enthusiastic about it, you know, and to give you the positive view of it also, basically the way it works now is we put our money into banks and the banks use our money to make money, a lot of money, and they give us these miserable uh, interest rates or no, hardly any interest whatsoever. Whereas the the, the good part of, of of the of this crypto world is that when disintermediate, you, know, you can choose you know to you know put your money into play directly, but you know then you're also dealing with the risk of that, you know, and, and you don't have any uh, insurance. If people get fleeced in crypto, there's nobody to appeal to. And it is a very, um, you know, scam infested uh, situation. Daniel Pinchbeck, I thank you so much for spending time with us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. If people want more information about what you're thinking about, they can subscribe to your Substack. And I thank you for your time with us today. Okay, Jeff, thanks for having me. Thank you. And thank you for listening and joining us here on the Who, What, Why podcast. I hope you join us next week for another Radio Who, What, Why podcast. I'm Jeff Sheckman. If you like this podcast, please feel free to share and help others find it by rating and reviewing it on iTunes. You can also support this podcast and all the work we do by going to whowhatwhy.org forward slash donate.